driving principles really to get a mechanistic understanding of cognition at lowest level possible. That's for sure. But the way to get there, I would say, I think is through a large amount of exploration. And partly it's because I think at this moment, we don't really know how the brain works. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Back in May, I sat in on the Curiosity, Creativity, and Complexity Conference, a three-day gathering hosted at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute. It's thought to address how the brain copes with complexity and how we make decisions when confronted with practically infinite streams of information. Seem like timely, relevant concerns, to be sure. This was Curiosity Research and Theory in the deep end of the pool. I was fascinated, but also struggling to keep up with some of the computational models. I came away with a long list of papers to read and lots of terminology to look up. Somewhere early on in the first day, Ilya Monosov, a professor of neuroscience at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, gave a talk about the neurobiology of cognition and curiosity. He discussed his research and findings around uncertainty reduction, including that the value of information increases with uncertainty, especially among humans. Intuitively, that felt right. Given my own attraction to the value of the information I was hearing, my uncertainty about its particulars notwithstanding. He also reported finding that our neurons might actually anticipate uncertain rewards, which was intriguing. But what really caught my attention about Ilya was what he did after his presentation. One impressive speaker after another shared their work on topics as rich and varied as spontaneous thought, timing of choice and parallel searches, the information gap theory of curiosity and epistemic neural networks. And more often than not, it seemed to me, Ilya had a question. He was unfailingly enthusiastic and complimentary about the presenter's work. These were no gotcha questions, and he'd clearly been listening really carefully. I had the feeling he was thinking about how every one of those talks related to his own work in some way, even if he wasn't quite sure what that was. It seemed the embodiment of the spirit of the multidisciplinary gathering and of curiosity itself. Ilya Monosov's lab focuses on the neuronal basis of voluntary behavior. He and his colleagues are interested in the mechanisms of risky decision-making in humans and other animals, the complex processes we use to assign value to information, how these mechanisms play out as we grapple with novelty in our lives, and whether we want to know the probability and timing of noxious events. When you get down to the essence of those questions, he's really trying to understand how curiosity shows up in our work and lives at a very fundamental level. And I'm delighted to have Ilya Monosov with me today. So welcome, Ilya. Thanks. Thanks. That was a very kind and generous introduction. <laughs> well, you know, that's sort of the spirit in which I felt you showed up in the conference, which is 
why I was so excited to talk to you about this. So what got you interested in curiosity? What got you started? I think I've always been, well, curious, but really in terms of practical things, it's been kind of um, a series of accidents in a way fueled by my own curiosity and also uh, a preference for exploration. And, and I would say assigning high values to actual errors. So I can say that when I was a postdoc, I was exploring a part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And I was studying something not precisely related to uncertainty or curiosity, in fact. But uh, I've always liked trying to see what else is out there. And during one of the experimental sessions, I started mapping the brain just a little bit off target from where I was really aiming just to see what was nearby. And to my surprise, what I did see is a single neuron that co-varied its firing rate or its activation with how uncertain the animal was about the future reward that it was waiting for. Okay, so put that in put that in kind of layperson's terms. What does that mean? So what so single neurons in the brain communicate with each other by generating action potentials, little electrical impulses. And the way we measure an activity of a single neuron is by measuring how much, how many spikes, for example, per second or action potentials it fires. And the single neuron's firing rate or amount of activity actually was directly related to how uncertain the animal was in whose brain the neuron was being recorded. And that was pretty uh, surprising to me. And I knew right away I wasn't in the right area that I was actually, you know, aiming. So in a way I was successful to go off to the side and see what was there. Oh, interesting. And I knew immediately that it was very important. And, you know, I immediately switched my research topic because it was really, really remarkable and totally unexpected. There's some line, oh, I'm, I'm not going to remember it. From a scientist about, you know, the, the most important kind of expression in science is not eureka, but, oh, that's funny. The, th the little things like that, the sort of sideways things, just a little off the mark where you go, wait a second. So that's your story. Yeah. I mean, the I mean, the activity immediately felt extremely important. Yeah. There were a bunch of questions about it, but there's no doubt that yeah, it immediately made me realize that this was a key thing to sort of go after. And at that time, first of all, a lot of people didn't expect that a single neuron would actually represent uncertainty in that way. A lot of people thought that would be actually only done at the level of populations in a distributed way across brain circuits. That's, that's the first thing. And also, since we did find it, I had no idea what the signal was being used for at all. And hmm. I kind of started my lab in that state. Like, yes, there's a signal and we have no idea what it's used for. And that's really uh, been an exciting and kind of wild uh, ride for the uh, past 10 years or so. That's so interesting. Well, to me, that makes a lot of sense with what I was seeing with your kind of 
exploratory investigative style at the meeting, right? You were you were picking up signals and you were trying to make sense of them or connect them to something, which is sort of kind of the driving principle behind the lab. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that's the driving principle. The driving principle is really to get a mechanistic understanding of cognition at lowest level possible. That's for sure. But the way to get there, I would say, I think is through a large amount of exploration. And partly it's because I think at this moment, we don't really know how the brain works. Mm-hmm. And that's at the lowest levels. I mean, things like retina, things like visual cortex. I think if you take a neuroscience class, you may have the sense that we know quite a bit, but I, I beg to differ. And so because of that issue, uh, I think there are lots of different ways to get to the sort of apple falling from the tree moment or the eureka moment or the aha moment, whatever you want to call it. And ours is a big part is exploration of neural circuits with theory kind of driving, uh, driving it. So we often will spend enormous amount of time trying to design a very careful task or approach to study the brain. But once we get into the brain on a daily basis, we might do quite a lot of exploration before we sort of settle on what brain area to explore. And we tend to modify the task further based on what we see in the brain. So there's this kind of uh, start with rigorous theory and then modification online based on what we see instead of sort of sticking to what we predetermined. Interesting. So what does that actually look like? I mean, when when you're looking at a brain, what are you actually doing? We're electrophysiologists for the most part, although recently we've been doing also a lot of things like calcium imaging and rodents and stuff like this. But the bread and butter of the lab is really behavior and electrophysiology. And so I would say, the you know, for a while we spend time really trying to make sure that we have the right behavioral approach to ask a question. For example, how does a neuron scale with uncertainty? How might it impact uh, uncertainty reduction? What What's the right experiment to really test that and really, really rigorously? So we'll do that planning phase and we'll code up a behavioral task. Then we'll train an animal. Maybe it's a mouse, maybe it's a non-human primate, and maybe it's a human. In fact, we do all three, or maybe it's a computer algorithm to actually solve or participate in the task. And we look at the behavioral readout. We always start with the behavior. And the behavioral readout is a brain readout? No, no. It's it's voice or response Ah. lines or some other output. And the reason we do this, it's actually basic, basic engineering. If you want to understand a system, you need to be able to have a tight control over its inputs and its outputs. And once we can sort of understand the input and the output very well, and the behavior, for example, shows that the animal is seeking to resolve its uncertainty, and that behavior can't be explained by a bunch of other factors, then we go in, only then we go in and study how neural circuits 
participate in that behavior? What kind of information do neurons transmit to support the behavior? How does the neural activity actually vary with the behavior? Maybe it predicts the behavior. Maybe the neural activity actually occurs after the behavior. So there's all sorts of wonderful things you can ask with that approach about the brain. Uh, and at this moment, it feels almost infinite, I think, because of where we are in neuroscience. <laughs> well, right. I mean, if single neurons have this kind of impact, I mean, that suggests that that's true in other brain functions as well, right? So the permutations right. and combinations, they just, I mean, the multipliers, they are crazy huge. Yeah, sure. Single neurons, I mean, single neurons and their population code right. is what governs our behavior. So there's no sort of surprise. You know, we're capable of so many behaviors and that's, you know, mostly or entirely generated by the neural code, probably with some support of non-neural by non-neural cell types. But most of it is neurons. So and curiosity and things you're interested in are not are really non not a magical type of motivation. In fact, it's another type of motivation that's supported by a neural network in our brain. You're listening to Choose to Be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Ilya Monosov. We're talking about the neurobiology of cognition and curiosity. You wrote in something that I read, you wrote that understanding our informational preferences is important for a society as a whole. And yeah. so so zoom back out <laughs> and and put this in that larger context. Why do you say that? Well, I think it's a fundamental issue for um, humanity, actually. So first of all, I think I think you know, a lot of people think of curiosity and information seeking in a positive light. Mm -hmm. And I think that's nice and optimistic, but I think it's actually a lot more complex. And the reality is that animals evolved in a very different situation than we now find ourselves in. And in fact, our brains were sort of changed through evolution to deal with a very different environment than we find ourselves in. And it's, it's important because a lot of people have this idea that evolution converges on optimal solutions. And this is an idea that people that don't actually study evolution have. Mm -hmm. And it's a convenient mm -hmm. idea because if you're trying to make an algorithm, it's natural to think about optimality because you want your algorithm to work well. And then you sort of say, well, okay, the human brain sort of like this too. Um, that's fine, but I just don't really think that there's powerful evidence that that is the case. In fact, I think our brain evolved through evolution in response to a bunch of random events. And I'm amazed at how well all the different brain areas and different computations work it's actually an stunning, stunning. So from that perspective, tying it back to the info thing, I think the way that we seek info and the way that we relate to our uncertainty are things that are really actually important to carefully think about if we want to protect their quality of life. 
if we want to have a healthy relationship with AI, because it's not the case that we can now choose to not have a relationship. I don't, I don't think that's really a, a choice. Um, so we need to think carefully about that, the way we educate our children with the goal of protecting our society, right? So that we keep democracy going. That's why my family came to this country from Russia is that with the hope that the democracy would continue. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, so I think these things are very important and I think they've played out in some really complex ways recently that we all know about and we should be thinking about how to create a technological space in which to live in that sort of protects our humanity. And I think information seeking is really an important part of that, like yeah. thinking about that yeah. both philosophically and neuroscientifically and at the level of kind of the interaction between ML or machine learning, sorry, and neuroscience and in general, I think these are big issues. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I also, I want to, kind of riff off that a little bit, but but also sort of change direction a little bit, because you also have done some work on when um, information seeking is disrupted in mental disorders. Yes, we are very busy studying that in OCD right now. Yes. Yeah, so, so tell me about that. We're trying to develop a more econometric and quantitative approach to clustering patients and the idea is traditional psychiatry sort of does the following they they give you know they give people some questions and then the the psychiatrist based on experience makes a judgment about what the disease is and i think there's nothing wrong with that in fact that's helped thousands of people this is not a statement to demonize that at all but it is very different from you know, other types of medicine, partly because we don't know a lot about the brain. I mean, if you go to a nephrologist, it's sort of like speaking with an engineer <laughs> uh, versus a psychiatrist. But one thing I will say is that we've sort of realized that we can nudge psychiatry a little bit more towards engineering. Mm -hmm. And the way we'd like to go about it is we'd like to actually identify what's wrong with an individual patient what's the break point, what's the algorithm that's broken in their brain uh, and relate that to neural circuits and hopefully push forward like precision psychiatry. And I can give you examples. So specifically for OCD, you know, OCD can be play out in lots of different ways. It, it, it is not the case that all OCD patients, for example, do kind of physically observable ritualistic behavior. That's not the case. Also, some of them are checkers. So that's like people who want to resolve uncertainty uh, and will sacrifice a lot of reward to keep checking and checking and checking. But that's not all OCD patients. Other Others kind of have relatively normal checking behavior, but may have totally aberrant uh, learning behavior, the way they update their beliefs from feedback from the environment. And then others may indeed have some combination of the two plus some kind of ritualistic behavioral pattern. So there's a lot of variability. 
And what we'd like to do is develop behavioral tasks and are developing behavioral tasks that can better cluster these people by their actual cognitive breakpoint. And the other point, point there is that it's been really, really hard to link genetics to mental disorders. Mm -hmm. And that makes total sense because if you sort of have a wide category and not individual sort of breakpoint based behavioral clusters, it's going to be really hard to do some kind of large scale genetic association study and find any relationship. I mean, it's incredible when people do, it's such a success. And so for OCD, it's been a total, well, it's not been highly successful to find genetic association, even though many of us know that there are genetic associations. It runs, it runs in families, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. definitely runs in families. And so we'd like to also help with that aspect of trying to link the genetics to the behavior. So are, are neural patterns genetically determined? That's a very, very good question. So neural activity and our beliefs that are, that are encoded by that neural activity and our motivations are unlikely, or I think are not encoded by genetics. In fact, in fact, uh, I'm writing a review right now that spends a good deal amount of time unpacking this issue, but genetics can set up or predispose us yeah. to have certain types of, well, good things like capacity, cognitive capacity, thinking over long time scales. My, my schnoodle can't think, <laughs> of, you know, along the same time horizon that I can. Um, nice dog, but can't do it. And that's certainly strongly driven by genetics. And I think some individual variability is probably also guided by genetics, like our capacity or, and similarly are the possibility with which you can develop a mental disorder is probably related to something in genetics. Uh, and we know that based on predisposition, yeah, predisposition based on qualitative observation and some successes in that area. But I think we haven't fully unpacked that. And also similarly, we're also getting to understand that genetics can actually, it's not like you're born with a certain genetic pattern that's sort of set in stone. There's all sorts of life trauma and things that can change one's genetics and that can be passed down as well. So I think just saying, okay, genetics doesn't impact the firing rate of uh, uncertainty resolution neurons in the basal ganglia. Okay. But that's, <laughs> that's fine. just the beginning of the story. Yeah. I think that's true, but sort of, I think it is the work of science to get as low level as possible. And so if we want to understand predisposition, we go, we should consider genetics and we should try to cluster people more based on their behavior and go after that. And if we want to understand online current behavior, of course, we study neurons and their activity. Uh, that's sort of a long response, but that, yeah. That's, that's so it. interesting. I can't wait to read this next review that you're working on. Yeah, I, I, I can I can actually send you a draft. That's I would I would love to see it. I would love to see it. Well, before I let you go, you came for my big jar of wannabe analogies. 
Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. So it's a literal big jar. Right. I have uh, slips of paper in here. I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these. Yours is oil can. How is curiosity? Like an oil can? Oil can? And mine is needle. <laughs> oh, man. That's really funny. Um, all right. Um, I think like an oil can, curiosity is very sticky and all sorts of things can stick to it. And uh, we have to know when to wash our hands and when to lick our hands. <laughs> all right. Depends on the I oil, right? Is really, I mean, that is just a completely too difficult. Okay. I love that. I love that. Uh, so needle, um, how is curiosity like a needle? Um I guess it's a way that we stitch ideas together. Um, so needle stitches things together. I think curiosity is a way of stitching things together. I think a needle can pierce things. And I think curiosity can do that. Um, hmm. And I th and a needle, um, you know, this is radio, right? Uh, it's not old-fashioned phonograph, you know, records, but a needle was also a way, what seemed to me always kind of a magical way of getting from one solid state to to sound. And I think curiosity is this sometimes seemingly magical way of getting from one state to another. And records worked because we understood the mechanism. And I think curiosity, you know, there are a lot of mechanisms for us yet to learn. So apropos of your efforts. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's really beautiful actually. And I also agree that, uh, you know, we can end with this is that I think people view curiosity as a single sort of motivation, but there's so many components to it. Yeah, It's, uh, you know, our desire to interact with novel objects, how much we want to resolve our uncertainties, you know, how strongly are we driven by our actual imagination of something better than what we expected? There's so many different things that drive it. And so I think it's really important to kind of think about them a little bit separately in order to get down into that, like, understanding that you're, talk that you're talking about. I found my conversation with Ilya profoundly moving. I knew this was a curious mind at work, but it was more than that. I think he has put his finger on the intrigue of curiosity, a knowable, but still largely unknown system working at a cellular level with incalculable iterations and implications for the species. This is why I think it's so important that we keep working to get our arms around all of it. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm Lynn Borton, and I've enjoyed being your host today. Thanks for joining us. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can share your charcoal analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Ilya Monosov. Links to his work on my website. 
Thanks too to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Lacquer Groove by Tiny Tiny Trio via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Thank you.